the idea there is that by at least having that discussion and getting the debate happening around those issues, we can start working on them sooner rather than later. So they're not upon us before we even realise it. And the analogy I like to use in this regard is, if you remember years ago now when Uber arrived in Australia, and I, I have this visual image of seeing the taxi drivers in Victoria all protesting on Harmon House because they literally hadn't seen it coming. Even though I think when you look back, it was it was clearly coming for a number of years before that. Well, we don't want agriculture to ever be in that position where we don't see some of these trends or these challenges or these opportunities coming without having thought about them a bit. Welcome to Boots Off, Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business, a show about the business of farming bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David, and I'll be your host for the show. Good day, everybody, and welcome again to the podcast. In this episode, I talk with John Harvey, the MD of AgriFutures Australia. AgriFutures is an organisation born from the original Rural Industries Research and Development Corporation. It is one of 15 RDCs that service the research, development and extension needs of Australian rural industries. We talked to John about his early experiences with agriculture and how that caused him, after he left school, to pursue a career in agribusiness that ended up including five years as the CEO of GRDC and now for the past seven years, the MD of AgriFutures. John and his team are passionate about changing the perception of agribusiness careers and highlights that 40% of the people in agribusiness work in the city. And in contrast, only 5% of the agri-workforce is on farm. His message to everyone is that agriculture is for you if you want a fulfilling career with real purpose, regardless of the discipline you want to pursue. We also talk about ag-research, and John talks about how only 2% of the world's agri-research is done in Australia, and how agri-futures through programs like Avocag, GrowAg, Ag Accelerate is working to bring this research to Australia and give Australian farmers early access to this technology and build a thriving Australian ag tech industry. We have a great conversation about the 13 carbon conversation forums that were held across Australia in 2022 and the challenges and the opportunities farmers voice surrounding this net zero 2050 target. We talk about the big themes that emerge from these conversations, what farmers think and feel, and what challenges and opportunities lay ahead. Plus, what practical steps that we need to take next in this new and evolving part of the agricultural economy. This is a fascinating and engaging conversation that really helped me understand the critical role AgriFutures plays in our agricultural ecosystem. Plus, John also has one of the best articulated reasons of why everybody should consider a career in agriculture regardless of where they're from or their background. Enjoy this conversation. Now over to John. Thanks, David, and great to be here. Hey, mate, I was, I was just saying when we're offline, uh, you know, before I ever get a guest, I always um, stalk you on the internet and, and see what you've been up to for a while. And uh, um, you've got a pretty impressive career. So you've been 20 plus years in agribusiness of one sort or another, and obviously a really big chunk of that in the grains industry. 
um, I'm always interested is, you know, at some point, for, for you and I, maybe it's a little while ago, we were students somewhere and thinking about what the hell we're going to do with our lives. You've had this very strong agribusiness pathway and career. Was that always the case? Or sort of what prompted you to, to follow the pathway you've gone down? Um, David, it's a fascinating question, and it's one that I often sort of ruminate on because I was born in Sydney in, um, in the suburbs, um, and when I look back, we had our um, family holidays on a farm. Uh, every Christmas we go up to a place called Ewingsdale near Byron Bay, and I think it's those early days where you build this emotional connect with the land. And from about the age of eight, I told my parents I was always going to be a farmer. Well, that never happened. When I got to high school, I found an interest in science and then marrying up the science with agriculture, agricultural science or rural science at Armidale seemed to be the most sensible thing to do. Um, and never looked back and no regrets whatsoever about going into agriculture and never lived in Sydney since. <laughs> Do you know? What? I, I think we're, I think we're going to touch on ag careers a bit later. But I, I, I've talked to Ollie Olivia, is about a similar thing. He was a Sydney boy and ended up in ag, and um, and it was same same story. Holidays on farms and mates on farms. And I go, I reckon if you want to encourage a huge cohort of people to get into ag, I think we should have compulsory ag holidays. And uh, I couldn't agree more. It's interesting. We've done a little bit of work on perceptions around careers in agriculture and we survey the general community and of course 90 percent of the people in australia live in cities but one of the really interesting findings out of that was just if a person has one connection with one person in agriculture they're twice as likely to have a career in agriculture um wow, so that's huge isn't it and the other the other really interesting perception issue is that um we look at, we normally have this image on our head of if you're in agriculture, you're a farmer. And we know about 5% of the workforce in agriculture is a farmer or is, on the, is in the farm. You know, you think of the big West Australian farms where you come from, and there might be one and a half people working 10,000 acres. There's not a lot of people working that land. But, but something like 40% of our workforce in agriculture live in the city. Wow. That's a, that's a pretty surprising stat, isn't it? It is, yeah. And even encouragingly, look, that's not even just in agribusiness. So I, I don't know what that, I'd love to know what the numbers are. So I'm one of those people who moved from the farm um, and ended up in the city 24 years ago, I suppose, 23 years ago. But as I, and all my farming connections and friends were still on the farm, but um, I'm finding more and more these commuting farmers. So farmers that I meet on the weekend in Perth, but farm an hour or two hours from Perth, but they live in urban areas and are commuting almost like drive in, drive out. And that's becoming another interesting anecdotal stuff. So farmers living in the city. Correct. And the, and the, and the reverse where got a lot of people working in the city that are serving agricultural industries, um, you know, like um, so uh, there's certainly there's certainly a real opportunity there i think for us because these days i mean i know when i think of my own boys and their careers they want to be paid well they want they want money that's number one but the second thing that's very high on the list is they want a career that's purposeful and how could you have a more purposeful career than somewhere where you're feeding the world and you know addressing challenges like climate change and protecting the environment at all at all probably hits the road in agriculture so it's the obvious place 
have a career if you want to make a difference. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you pick your discipline, like if you walked into, say, a, a career or a discipline, you're quite right. So your science was your pathway to ag. But it's the same thing. If you pick a discipline, whether it be um, a, a, you know, a science or a, a business, there is a business or a science stream in ag which is insanely interesting. You could be trading futures in Chicago or you could be an agronomist in a local town or you could, you know, or trade. You know, there's so many opportunities, isn't there? You could be a lawyer or you can be an accountant. We need them all in agriculture. You could be an artificial intelligence specialist. You could be robotics, automation. There's so many opportunities. And what agriculture brings to a career is purpose. You're doing something that's going to be good for people and good for the world. So why not? You know, why not bring your skills to bear in such an important part of the of the future of the world? Um, we we see quite a lot of people that from the city who get to maybe get to thirty five, maybe a little bit older, very proficient, very proficient at their skill set or their profession, but are actually looking for some more purposeful application. Um, might, they might be an accountant, they might be a lawyer, and what I'm what I say is, well, if you're looking for purpose, look to agriculture, because you can have real impact. You can make big changes to things like water use efficiency and the transition to carbon neutral and protecting the environment and habitat and biodiversity, as well as at the same time feeding the world. Because you've got to be able to do both. You can't do one or the other. Yeah, and I think um, especially one thing I've learned as I've gone through business is the generations following me and yourselves into business are uh, quite rightly a lot more purpose-driven. You know, they're looking for a lot more purpose in their roles. Um, and funny enough, it's actually funny enough, as people seem to be seeking more purpose, it finds harder to find in, in a traditional in a traditional um, workplace in many cases. So you're quite right. It's actually saying, well, here's a workplace that already has a massive ingrained purpose. You don't have to invent it or go looking for it. It's just there. Yeah, I guess, and the other thing is we've we've a generation coming through that really sees the value and is optimistic about technology. And when you look forward at some of the challenges we've got, ultimately innovation and technology is going to be a really key part of that solution. So you've got a generation coming through that's looking for purpose, is very um, astute and adept at technology. The world's not looking in a bad place in my view. No, definitely, and bringing that technology to bear in a, in, a, in a way that makes an impact rather than a novelty is um is you know is a never-ending battle, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, talking about tech, so AgriFutures. So you've been the I think MD or at AgriFutures for seven years. Is that have I got that right? Or yeah, that's so. Yeah, look, my I joined in two thousand sixteen. Um, Prior to that, my whole career was in the grains industry, um, mainly in GRDC, Grains Research Development Corporation, and um, the CEO there from 2011 to 2016. um, Loved the grains industry. I love what it stands for and what it's done. I love the way that it's, you know, taken on board new technologies like no-till and controlled traffic and adopted new water-use-efficient varieties. Just so it's been a huge privilege to watch some of that innovation flow through and just be a part of it. Um, so I love the grains industry. But uh, in 2016, I had the opportunity to take on this role with AgriFutures. We were then the, called the Rural uh, Industries Research Development Corporation and we were based in Canberra. Um, so we're one of the 15 research development corporations. 
like GRDC and like MLA and Dairy Australia. So um, um, and uh, Redek at that stage and still does. We look after thirteen levied industries. So we look after and do the R and D for rice, chicken meat, honeybees, tea tree oil, export fodder, thoroughbred horses. I won't go through the whole list. But thirteen industries. Uh, we also invest in new and emerging industries um, like truffles, um, hazelnuts, seaweed, insects, um, sesame, hemp, um, and we're currently investing in about forty emerging industries. But we also have you know, we have federal um, appropriation to invest in issues that go across the whole of agriculture. So we do a lot of work around collaboration across RDCs as well as things like agri-food tech, innovation and climate um, and um, workforce. So do you work alongside, so I'm trying to work out the um, agri-futures e- ecosystem here. So you've got your, like coming out of the grain industry, which has obviously had an incredible R&D and extension sort of capacity to it. Um, and we've seen that with the stability of yields just going through the roof continually over decades. So there's 15 research development corporations in Australia, and they are all a partnership between farmers who pay an R&D levy and the federal government who matches that levy dollar for dollar, basically. Um, and then the, the relevant research development corporation goes and invests for the benefit of, you know, of, of levy payers and, and the government. Total, total spends about $850 million per annum across the 15 organisations. And agri-futures... Um, we have 13 industries that we um, invest in and who pay a levy. Um, and we do very much what, we, what, what I did with GRDC. We work with those industries that identify their pain points and their R&D priorities, and then we put in place investments to address those priorities. And, and obviously extension and development and extension and delivery and adoption are really key to success because unless farmer does something different in their paddock, and makes, uh, makes them either more sustainable or more profitable, will return on investment zero. So it's really important that we actually get that stuff out there and adopt it. So we're no different in that respect to all of the other 15 RDCs. Where, where we are a little bit different is we just we get appropriation from the federal government, which is not matched by levies, it's independent. And that's to invest in emerging industries where they're not at the point where they have their own levy. And we have about 40 of those industries. And the, federal, uh, the government, when they set up the RDCs, was very conscious that there were also issues that go right across the whole of agriculture. And we also have that built into our mandate to address some of those issues. And this is why, now you've had this over, overarching role for a while, but just recently you've had this, um, you talked, uh, I think I read somewhere, this strategic focus shifted to grow prosperity of rural industries and communities. Is that linked into, we we're talking about, you know, perceptions of agriculture and things like this. Is, is that... A cha- so why the change in, I suppose, strategic focus? And have I got that correct? Yeah, so um, our mandate in the um, legislation has been around for 30 years, so that hasn't fundamentally shifted. Um, but it, it's very hard to work. I mean, it's very hard to work outside of the context of rural communities. I mean, rural industries are integral to rural communities, and I, I guess... Um, that community engagement, particularly with some of the challenges that we've got in front of us, like the transition to carbon neutral and carbon abatement and all of those things, um, it's going to require a community response. So I guess with our most recent five-year plan, probably put a little bit more emphasis in that part of the business. So that goes into my really my next question. I'm, 
uh, I think it was last year that you released a more well, Agthentic and Ag Futures released this report on essentially, I think it was the 10 the things shaping us their future of agriculture in Australia. And I'm really interested to drill on this. And so what did you particularly and all you, the organisation, learn from that report about? So what do you think is shaping Australian agriculture going forward? Or what's it look like? I suppose you're not a crystal ball. We don't have a crystal ball. But what's it sort of looking like, do you think? Um, so we do this quite regularly um, and we've done it a number of times now where we've we've commissioned some work to really look at what's over the horizon, what's coming, what are some of the opportunities and challenges. And the idea there is that by at least having that discussion and getting the debate happening around those issues, we can start working on them sooner rather than later. So they're not upon us before we even realise it. Um, and, and the analogy I like to use in this regard is you remember years ago now when Uber arrived in Australia and I, I have this visual image of seeing the taxi drivers in Victoria all protesting on Harmon House because they literally hadn't seen it coming, mm-hmm. even though I think if, when you look back it was, it was clearly coming for a, a number of years before that. Well, we don't want agriculture to ever be in that position where we don't see some of these trends or these challenges or these opportunities coming without having thought about them a bit. So that report that we commissioned from Agathentic was really just looking and getting another perspective on what some of those challenges might be. And I remember, by memory, I remember they one of the ones they raised was this whole issue around cybersecurity um, and how that, and uh, misinformation and how that might affect trust in supply chains. And, uh, yeah, we're, well, we're seeing that play out already in other industries as well as agriculture. So that's the... That's the the reason why we do that report is really to try and understand what is coming. What should we be watching out for? Yeah, because I'm, I'm with a lot of guests over this um, podcast. I'm interested in, you know, we, we tend to focus a lot, you know, in the day to day act of what we're doing now. Like, you know, what we we grow a thing. So we're either cattle farmers or grain farmers or mix or whatever. We're focusing on the next season, the next yield, the next tech coming through. But we don't really. Well, I don't know. I, I, I would, I'm making a massive assumption here, but it's uncommon to think in 10 years I might not be allowed to or there might be a whole new tech that makes this 10 times easier or 10 times harder. Obviously, um, so did you? were there any big, um, I don't know, aha sort of moments in that in those reports where you go, yeah, that's a, yes, it's a, it's a little outlier, but if it, if it, if it comes to pass, it's, it's going to fundamentally have a big impact either positively or negatively on ag? Um, the, well, the cybersecurity was one example, um, but to just to go a little bit further down that track, you know, looking at what's coming, what's over the horizon, I think one of the one of the challenges we've got is that we do about two percent of the world's research here in Australia. Uh, there's a lot of innovation happening overseas. So how do we make sure our farmers get early access to it? That's a big issue, I think, for for Australia. And and in fact, we're quite a small market. So when you look at startups and you look at the tech companies and the multinationals, they're very focused on, on North America. So they'll typically say, they'll say, they'll go to the US first, then they'll go to Europe, then they'll go to South America, and then they'll probably say, where else could we flog it? Um, and Australia inevitably ends up in that category of the rest of the world market. So there is some, I think, some work um, certainly some work we're doing is about how do we link up with what's happening in the rest of the world and how do we how do we 
promote Australia as a great place to test some of these new technologies so that our farmers get early access to it. Hence things like Evoke Ag, where, you know, where we actually shine a spotlight on the great innovation happening here in Australia, but also innovation happening around the world that might be relevant to Australia. Um, and also our platform growing, where we actually put all the commercial opportunities uh, onto one platform for, um, for companies to see, for farmers to see. Again, trying to connect up Australian ag innovation with what's happening around the rest of the world and form partnerships and alliances. And, and in the back of our head, back of our head, what the front of our heads is, you know, making sure our farmers here in Australia actually get early access to some of this new technology. Is there sort of, I remember when I was farming, that was a while ago now, there used to be frequent tours coming through, you know, like there'd be a Canadian tour come through or, a, or an Iraqi agricultural tour come through, et cetera. And obviously that's them looking at our systems and our tech and looking to take back. Is it a similar sort of thing with, look, when, I, when I'm reading up on ag, agri-tech, there's this, and especially whether it be through agri-futures or other ag-tech newsletters, you look at that um, tech innovation, especially in Europe within horticulture and that intensive space, it's just whole another level, isn't it? So is, can we look at those markets that are have had a lot of money and opportunity pumped into them and go, okay, that's what's coming down the pipeline? Can we, you know, maybe uh, how do we look at that as farmers and go, yeah, that's coming down the pipeline or I could adopt that tech here in a different way or those sort of things? Yeah, it's sort of almost the rationale for why we went and um, put Evogag in place was to try and make it easy for people to see what's coming um, and to connect and actually make connections with people that are doing it. So, for example, at Evogag in, in Adelaide um, earlier in the year in February, we had eight trade missions from around the world, countries come as a country, um, to highlight what innovation they were doing and bringing it to Australia. And vice versa, when we in setting up Evogag, the pitch that we played to overseas countries was come to Australia, spend two days at Evogag, a couple of days on the beach and be home by the weekend. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so, but it's really about that connecting and it's that personal connection and it's face-to-face and it's seeing and hearing and touching and feeling the technology that they're working on. And then, but also, you know, saying to the rest of the world, you know, don't always look straight to the US. The US is a hard market. It's a really tra- challenging market. We've got every single growing environment here in Australia from tropical to subtropical to temperate to Mediterranean. You've got a technology. If it doesn't work here, it's not going to work anywhere. Um, so, well, if it does work here, it will work anywhere. So come and test it out here. Um, we've had a few successes where we've said to companies and they've actually said, well, you know what, we're going to come to Australia first rather than go to the US. To me, that's what we're, you know, I'd love to see Australia become the agri-food tech hub for the Southern Hemisphere, a bit like San Francisco is for the Northern Hemisphere, but make it, you know, make Australia the hub for the agri-food tech in the, um, in the Southern Hemisphere is where, where I think the future is. Because we do have that. We have obviously those Mediterranean climates, which is, you know, in the in the southwest corner, and then you've got, uh, the, I don't know what you call those climates, but the, the coldest Southern climates in Victoria, and you've got, and then you look across North Australia, whether that be through the, the Kimberley or right through Queensland, you've got a lot of climates which mirror a lot of that bottom end of Southeast Asia. So sometimes when, when you go to, especially you know, when you go to Asia and you see all those amazing fruit and vegetables and stuff that we just don't see here in Australia, I'm going, why are we growing them in, you know, like here? Like it's a really interesting because we're only like a stone's throw across the water and we have all this, this intelligence here. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. We sort of have the whole world in a little country, don't we, in some ways? 
Yeah, we do. And we're a nice, stable country, easy to do business in, got the skills, got great farmers, got good researchers. Now, like, it's a bit of a no-brainer. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's like you've been trying to sell this before, John. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, um, well, let, let, before we move on, um, obviously um, we've got it coming to Perth. We've got a vote, oh, at least a vote coming to the beautiful West, and uh, this, this is where you get the good beaches. So that's a good plug. So who are the head? Who are, who are we got really coming to? Like, if people haven't signed up for a vote, and so all you people on the Eastern Seaboard come to Perth, you know, so it's sort of like a one-way trip. You'll never want to go home, but. Um, who's headlining? Who are we bring? Who you? Who have you got on stage this year? So we've got a, a game. What we try and do with Evoke is we try and bring. We, we're really trying to. Our goal is that people go away having learned something new, that they and met somebody they've never met before, but with a new concept that they just hadn't heard anywhere else before. So we do go out and target people from around the world to come and and be speakers. Sometimes they're not even in the field of agriculture. They might be in a completely different field, but where we believe there's application of their technology um, in, a, in uh, agriculture. This, this year, we're, there's quite a lot of interest in AI and how that's going to impact agriculture. So that's certainly got some um, speakers talking about um, AI uh, and its impact. Um, but look, the program's actually out on the website. But so people, um, the best thing is to go and have a quick look at some of their headlines. You've got some background there. We've already sold over 50% of the tickets and we're only in the beginning of December, which is well ahead of where we were last time. The other thing that's interesting this time, and I love the way the WA community just comes together and and backs and, and it's back to vogue. It's just fabulous, um, including the West Australian government, but the local business as well. So we've had fabulous support. But this time around, we're seeing a lot of farmers registering early, which is really, really encouraging and exciting. Yeah, so, so that's in, I think, in, towards the end of Feb, I think, isn't it, John? From uh, 2021, I feel. Yeah, 2021. We'll put it on the podcast. So at the end, we'll put a link to, to a book yep. and every, everything else um, John's spoken to today. Um, now, when we're talking about shaping the future, obviously carbon seems to be a... a a big conversation, John, and I think I've, I don't know how many um, conversations I've had in the last year about carbon um, from all different angles. So you've had carbon conversations this year. You've travelled Australia um, and you've had a lot of uh, carbon conversations. So, um, and it's about this net zero target, this 2050 net zero target and all the, all the challenges and opportunities around that. So... What I'm really interested in, the, I think 13, did you 13 meetups, I think, from memory? Yeah. What are the big learnings? So what, what did you learn from these conversations? Yeah, um, David, it's fascinating because um, Kathy McGowan joined AgriFutures about this time last year as the chair of the board. And in talking with Kathy, we had a long conversation about the whole transition to carbon neutral and what AgriFutures' role might be. and what was happening. And at the end of that discussion, we said, you know, we, we need to go out and talk to people and find out what they're thinking. <laughs> and so we, we said, well, why don't we have some carbon conversations uh, and just go out and listen. And I remember when we were organising and thinking, you know, we might be lucky if we get seven or eight people turn up to these. <laughs> and, uh, and also thinking, <laughs> like, a conversation with seven or eight people is not a bad way to go. At least, you know, it's a, you're normally going to have a good conversation. What we actually um, found was, um, so we had 80 people register for these conversations in the first 10 minutes. 
we had 240 register in the first 24 hours and we had 750 people register for Carbon Conversations across wow. Australia. Um, blown away with the amount of interest and um, uh, people wanting to talk about carbon. We had 750 people register. Luckily, they didn't all turn up. We had about 300 people we talked to. And we ended up running um, 13 conversations, Hobart, two in Sydney, two in Melbourne, one in Darwin, one in Adelaide, one in Perth, two in Wagga, one in Brisbane, one in Toowoomba, one in Canberra. Um, so, and we just really asked three things. They, we At these um, conversations, Cathy and I started with, just tell us what you want to tell us about the transition to carbon neutral. And then we said, what do you think agri-futures could do that would make a difference? And then we said, what are you going to do when you get back into your local community? They were really the three questions and that we spent about three hours at least um, working our way through. And I'll just go through what we heard a, a, a little bit. But the first thing was there was a lot of emotion. Um, people are confused. Um, there's fear. There's people feeling overwhelmed. There's people feeling scared. There was people that were saying it's all too hard, we just ignore it, or and there's people saying this is just an annoyance and others saying, well, until there's a real driver here, we're not going to do anything, uh, and the driver's not clear. So there was a lot of diversity of emotions um, in the room, but one, one uh, theme that came through quite strongly was, and this really came from the farmers, was we don't want to be left having to do all the heavy lifting on our own. We don't mm. want... You know, everyone's setting their targets and everybody talking about moving to carbon neutral and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, we can see we can see that it could all end up on our shoulders as the as where the rubber hits the road and how we're going to actually meet all of those diverse expectations. Uh, you know, banks have signed up to targets and the supply chain has different targets and government, local government, and state government have targets, but the rubber hits the road on farm and trying to meet everybody's needs could be really quite challenging. Um, so that came through quite strongly. The other thing that came through was just a lack of information that people felt they could trust, so trusted sources of information. Um, I had a, a one, one example of a farmer just sticks in my head where he said, look, I want to do the right thing. I went out and did a carbon balance. I got a consultant, paid lots of money got a consultant to come in and do a carbon balance on my farm. And he gave me the number and I looked at it and I thought, well, I don't know if it's right or if it's wrong. So he got a completely different consultant, paid them a lot of money to do the same thing. And, of course, he got a different number. So what does he do? You know, like he's sitting there with two numbers. Which one does he believe? Which one does he trust? Uh, yeah, so and, the, and the accounting is, is a bit squirrely sometimes. I was talking to a farmer the other day and he was listening to uh, an organisation that was say, selling, uh, I don't know what you call it, carbon credit accreditation and selling credits, etc. And one of the ones he was told he could sell the sequestered carbon in his soil. And he's going, oh, that's great. But then if I have a heavy rain and I mineralise all that carbon and grow a crop with it, do I have to pay you back? Yeah. <laughs> and and the answer was, I don't know. And you kind of go, well, and then he was going, okay, now I'm sort of, I don't know what to do now. Yeah, and the other, I mean, and there was also a bit of not sure if I should trust you in there as well because yeah. I'm not sure if you're giving me advice for your benefit or for my benefit. Yeah. And no one in particular, but that was, I mean, I'm not trying to point the finger at anyone, but that was just a feeling that came through some of the commentary was, you know, we're not quite sure where to go, we're not quite sure who to trust yet. 
in this whole space of moving towards carbon neutral. Um, lots of challenges around just data collection, cost of collecting, where do you store it, uh, how do you manage it, what are the standards, how do you get consistency. Um, that came through strongly. There was some concerns just about the integrity of the ACTU system. So um, ACTUs are probably one of the stronger uh, carbon units around the world, but, you know, there are other voluntary systems as well. How can you be sure? How can you be sure that these are not just the uh, junk bonds of the future? You know, that's that came through mm-hmm. a few times. Are we? Are these? Are they really real? I mean, or are they? Or could they? Could they um, evaporate in the future or, or disappear? So there's some concerns around that. Certainly, a lot of concerns around conflict of land use. So in your part of the world, in West Australia, you know, there's mines buying up property and planting trees for their carbon credits as offsets for their um, activities. Um, you know, again, do you use the land for carbon credits or do you use the land to grow food to feed the world? There's quite a bit of tension, I think, in that space to play out. But then on the other hand, we heard a lot of good stories about great practice where people are improving their carbon balance but at the same time improving their productivity uh, and, and improving the the viability and profitability of their business. So there's lots of also really good um, stories out there of success. Um, there's a lot of people raise the fact that it's not just about carbon, it's about um, it's also about um, ESG and environmental sustainability and biodiversity. So those things came in very strongly. Again, I'll probably say at the end of the day, probably a lack of um, clear pathway for a lot of people about what they actually should do on their farm and their local community. Um, and just on that, you know, we did we did uh, carbon conversations in West Australia and Northern Territory in Tasmania, and you know the solutions in the Northern Territory are completely different to the solutions in Tasmania, like chalk and cheese. And it became really really obvious that the solutions are going to be place based. They're going to happen on farm within a local community, in a location. Um, so the low hanging fruit in the West in Northern Territory. Um, in the rangelands might, is, is just completely different um, to, say, a berry farm, a, black, a blueberry farm in Tasmania, um, about how they go about it. Um, so really we ended up walking away thinking or feeling that we really need um, local leadership um, and national support. So the leadership need needing to come from local communities because uh, that's where solutions are actually going to be generated. Uh, you know, a group of farmers or um, um, and farm businesses and people in the community um, getting together and saying, you know, what could we do? What could we do individually? What could we do together that would um, abate carbon? Um, and then trialling, seeing if it works and learning from each other, uh, which is a proven technology for us, David. You know, look, go to the grains industry, the grower groups, mate. That's how we. That's how we got practice changes. Is people learning together? Yeah, and, and they're almost ready made those groups already, aren't they? So it's is that now? Because I'm, I'm a little ignorant on the on the architecture of carbon uh, accounting, and so the the carbon um, is there an overriding government body that accounts for carbon or manages carbon, like a, like the Reserve Bank of Carbon within it? So how does this sort of is there a um, a boss? You know, I'm probably getting out of my area of expertise too, David, on this one. Um, but there are some rules regarding the, um, the, you know, and putting integrity around the the actus, 
but I probably can't tell you much more than that. You probably need to talk to somebody else about how that system works and, and what sort of improvements are being made there. So is this, a, this idea of these um, local communities plus a, like a tying, tying together um, a body to try and create those conversations and create a better flow of information and everything, is that something that AgriFutures would do or something that AgriFutures would try to facilitate in the future? So, I mean, we're not, a, we're just at the stage of working through what our options might be within, because we have such a broad mandate in AgriFutures, what one of our things, one of our strategies, I guess, is is to try and pick the one thing that you can do really, really well that will make the biggest difference. And we call it the AgriFutures acupuncture. It's a bit like, you know, you find the pressure point and mm-hmm. you do it really, really well and you push hard there and then the whole system or the whole body changes. And that's what we're looking for. Uh, when we're looking at, a, at anything we do. It's what we did when we were looking at the agri-food tech. And ultimately, when we looked around Australia and looked around the world, what we saw was a lot of little agri-food events with all the same people turning up. And we said, well, the w- one thing we could do is run an event at scale and yeah. bring the people from overseas in. That would have, and, um, you know, when we ran it in Adelaide, we, we ran, ran the event, but there were 30 other events that popped up around Evoke. Oh, we had nothing to do with They just... And so we're, we're again, we're trying to say, well, in the carbon space, is there something we could do? At, at the moment, um, I think there is a need around this um, source of trusted truth, somewhere where you can go, and not, a, not that it's all going to be on the one site, but if, if you can go somewhere and you can find directions and be connected to trustworthy information, I think that would be quite powerful. Um, but like your farmer, yeah, you said the other, you mentioned the story just earlier on that, he got a report and he goes, he wants to validate the validity of the report. He, he, he they're, they're in the future, hopefully would be a place where he can go and go, is this, has this been done the right way? Or Yeah, that's the, and, and likewise, when the consultants are doing the report, they're using a methodology that's credible, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but look, we're toying with that at the moment. We haven't made any decisions. We've got some work to do there. Um, and um yeah, so that's possibly, but uh, but I also think, and I'm not sure that it's our role, but I think there is also a real need for that community level support, uh, expertise, skill. You might, um, now, whether you support the grower groups to deliver that, but you, there needs to be some um, skill and expertise and capacity and community leadership, community engagement, but also in technically in some of the solutions. You know, what? how do they actually work? How do you do the how you do the data collection, some of those really technical things, I think there's a bit of support required as well. And sometimes, like, you're right with the grower groups. So they tend to fill a lot of gaps in the, you know, you might have, say, 80 to 100 farmers in a grower group and they're all running lots of small experiments or they might be running an, a, a trial as a group, but ultimately they're learning from each other. You know, John did this on his farm and he found he could easily measure it that way and, okay, let's try it or let's run a controlled trial on Bill's farm or Jenny's farm next year or... They tend to be really good at that, aren't they? That 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 actionable on the ground research. They are, and what I love about them is the diversity in the groups. So you've got all of the participants in the in the family farm participating in the grower group, uh, and also intergenerational. And this is to me, this is brilliant because you've got the um, the older members or the, of the uh, grower group who've got the wisdom of having seen over twenty seasons. And you've got the younger people coming through that can work the technology. It's just such a beautiful um, um, combination. Um, and, of course, you've got um, the 
females females coming in with a different perspective and a community's perspective and an understanding of the business, uh, which is incredibly powerful. So that diversity of, of ways of thinking and ways of looking at the world, I reckon are, are why the grow groups are so amazingly successful. And you're quite right. So what I found is it's really interesting is functional side of I don't know, business side of fine businesses. Really interesting. So one of the things I find if I if I go and speak at a group on generally if I'm nearly always the farm business groups are dominated by the ladies in the business. <laughs> um, but if I go to a field day, it's nearly it's predominantly male dominant. It's really interesting. But in a grow group there it's almost across the board, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So um so it's the um with um the whole carbon thing. One of my um, guests earlier on, and I said, so where should I start as a farmer? And he mentioned, and I'd love to know the feedback from the conversations, he mentioned, look, it's there's a lot going on, it's early days, but it's worth having sticking your oar in the water. Now this might take five years, it might take 10 years, but it's gonna be a learning curve. And there's not really any silver bullet in 2023 or 24, but almost start getting around the conversation and understand how it works and maybe run some experiments on farm or whatever and it's not like it's going to change your business tomorrow but start getting into the game a little bit is, is that something that was sort of talked about within the conversations at all it's definitely was it certainly was um one guy down in tasmania i remember him saying he says he said the best thing agrifuturists could do would be to run ten thousand more of these conversations across australia <laughs> And it's to that very point, David, you make, which is just start talking about it, start discussing it with your with your um, with your colleagues um, and in your local community. What does it mean? Why is it important? What might we be able to do? Who needs to be involved? Um, and and then that's so that sort of and as you start doing that, things will come to mind. There'll be laying fruit that sort of pops out of that conversation, um, so which is, I think, really powerful. I think the other thing too, because I've seen, I mean, I've seen a whole lot of changes across farm, but this one really is, is a little bit different. There's so many more people interested in the outcome. So when we ran these conversations, you know, we had Telstra there, we had elders, we had nutrients, we had banks, we had, you know, we had a, there's a whole, we had McDonald's, we had Coles, Woolworths, and there's a whole lot of other players, government, who have got a, got an interest in the transition and may they've got an interest and they're probably also going to be part of the solution so you think about a local community why not the local um agri retailer why not be part of the leadership required why not the local bank manager why not the local government being part of the grow group being part of the discussion um coming up if a bank has a mandate for for example to lend, I don't know, sometime in the future they can have some sort of carbon uh, mandate. Yeah. You know, their job is to lend money and they don't want, you know, um, it to get in the way of that, that role. So, you know, they do have an interest in making sure that the, 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 the future lenders can, can meet the requirements that have been imposed on either by leadership or whatever, don't they? Yeah, and the other thing I really love about that, that approach is that, um, if it's not working on the ground, they'll be they'll, they were in a position to be able to feed it up from the bottom, you know, mm-hmm. and feed it up through the hierarchy of a 
of of the know, a corporation or whatever. So so to me that that bottom up balancing the top down with all the targets being set top down, we're balancing that with some bottom up community driven. Well, this is what we could actually do. That would make a difference. It would be really powerful. What do they say? The uh, the accounting seems a lot simpler from Pitt Street than it does from uh, yeah. from Aubrey, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. And then the other only other thing I think is just getting a sense and trying to get a a, a take on where what your baseline is. You know, what do you, what is your carbon balance at the moment? Would be the question mm. I think. And there could be some good reasons to have that well documented, so that if you do make some improvements, that you can measure them. Yeah, and just soil health as well. I think what, what you, you mentioned it from your experience in the grain industry, you think of the soil health and the soil quality that has changed over the past, I reckon, 20 years in the grains industry, you know, with the bringing in of no-till and, you know, the, the soil amelioration. And this, you know, if you look at, you know, go on a, on a grain farm now and look at the soil and what you could almost eat it these days compared to what it was when, you know, in the 80s. So... Yet even now, so this is almost like the next step in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is, and and I totally agree with you. I remember in the eighties, you know, the mid to late eighties. I remember some of the paddocks, you know, they were they were powered three or four times before we planted them, and so they were rock solid, absolutely rock hard. Um, and the other thing which we you don't see anywhere near as much as what we used to see is, particularly in the northern part of Australia, was just soil erosion. I mean, big gullies. Yeah. Where the, where the soil had washed away. Now, with all the stubble retention and the improved farming practices, you don't see that. It's a huge improvement. Oh, God, I remember back in the uh, 80s and probably early 90s, uh, we were we were um, light, um, wool growers and um, and bought towards in Western Australia, for those of you who aren't from Western Australia, the, the paddocks get fairly bare towards the end of uh, March and April before we get a break. And... Um, what happens if you can get a horrible thunderstorm in March? It just washes all the sheep shit into the dams, and you end up with sixty dams full of floating sheep shit. And um, like you said, with um, stubbles, you don't tend to get that as much anymore. Agritech and agrifutures. I just want to touch on you. So one of the things you've always, you know, you've got a dedicated agritech sort of focus, but also you've got the accelerate program and other things. I just want to touch a little bit on youth. So the work that agrifutures is working with the emerging leaders and the emerging people within ag. And we touched a bit on it at the beginning with the try with the ag conversations and the communication, but also the the way you're promoting agritech. Can you tell us a little bit around the the driver there and, and, and what the the outcome you're looking for in, in those programs? Um, yeah, so the um, so really a focus on um, Agri-Food Tech started back in 2017 when we did a, a bit like the Carbon Conversations, we did a series of innovation conversations really targeting young people and uh, talking to them about their aspirations for a career in agriculture. And um, back then I was just blown away by the, the, com- the feedback, which was we're excited about innovation. Um, we are frustrated with things like succession planning uh, we want control of our destiny. And 50% of them said to us, and we probably talked to 300 people, two to 300 people, who said, we either we want to be a founder or an investor or a customer of a startup. Wow. And uh, and then so I, we did exploring about what was happening. At the, this is back in 2017, some exploring around the world at what was happening. And there was a huge, there was just this incredible explosion happening around the world with new te- digital technologies 
a lot of them coming out of fintech and medtech and other parts of the economy, but with real application in agriculture. And what we're also seeing was incredible investment occurring around the world in from the venture capital funds because they could see the digital technologies as highly scalable and, to, and that allows them to get their return that they need from a venture capital fund for the risk they're taking. Um, so... Um, so it was so, so back in it was fascinating to see that explosion of investment happening around the world, but not happening here in Australia. So in 2018, the total investment in agri food tech, according to Ag Funder, was 23 million dollars. Okay, and in the rest of the world, it was in the billions. It was in the billions of dollars. Yeah. And that's when we said we just got to have a we've got to have a, a vibrant agri food tech innovation um, ecosystem here in Australia, and that's where a vote came from. And and we've now, I mean, you look, you look, look where we are now, you know, in 2021, we had $500 million worth of capital go into agri-food tech from private sector venture capital funds and others in Australia. Um, and we've now got our own homegrown venture capital funds like Tenacious uh, Ventures and others, uh, which, are, which is incredibly important. Um, so um, so that's that was sort of the origin, and that was the the reason I think we got involved. As we've gone down the track, it's become more and more obvious that <clears throat> we've also got to pull in Australia technologies from around the world. We're not on an island, um, and and for startups these days, they've got to to be viable. That the Australian market's too small anyway for them to survive mm. just in the Australian market. So they need to be connected up globally. Um, and so that's been a big part of our strategy. Um, a lot of the technologies that are a sector agnostic, um, and so it's not the te same technology will work in grain as it works in, you know, beef as it works in other sectors. So um, that we we felt there was a niche, and our niche really is just about connecting people, just connecting people up. We don't get involved in any of the commercial dealings, but we try and you know connect a startup startup with an investor. We try and connect a researcher with a startup or with an investor. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And farmers with startups, you know. So at the end of the day, they got the technology's got to work on farms. So connecting farmers with startups. So that connecting is the role that we've sort of played and, and felt we've had a role. It is almost. I always think of the, the this tech um, movement in ag now. It's almost like the next generation's um, new challenge. So I always think of like I look at my father's generation. And that was really, especially coming from. The West, that was all about clearing land and getting land into production and, you know, those what are, you know, those really core primary functions, getting fertiliser into the soil. And and then my generation came onto farm and it was really around that's we came in with that big agronomy boom. You know, we're bringing wheat yields from, you know, for, you know, in some cases in the eastern wheat belt from, you know, half a tonne to three tonnes and, you know, wool production from 30 kilos a hectare to 60 kilos a hectare, you know, that pasture tech. And um, so our generation was very, you know, that was our big thing, just bringing mass, you know, these huge productivity gains that we've seen in the last 20 years. But it's almost like this next gen, this ag tech is their thing. Like, you know, they don't need to clear land and pick sticks anymore. So, yeah. so they've got a new challenge ahead of them, don't they? Yeah, and just to follow, follow on from where you got to in that evolution, so after the, in grains anyway, after the agronomy, which was no-till and controlled traffic and precision farming, then then you actually got a real lift from the new varieties, which was using all the genetic mm. technologies and molecular biology and breeding, molecular breeding. 
um, and that made a huge impact on the performance of new wheat varieties. And, and you're right, now I think is the age of digital and automation and artificial intelligence and machine learning and autonomous. Uh, and that completely challenges the paradigm that we've had, which is bigger is better. You know, all those sort of things where you've got companies like Swarm Farm now going to much smaller units that are autonomous, that are controlled by artificial intelligence. You've got, you're moving to, you know, reducing sprays by 90% by going to spot sprayers, by mapping weeds. So that these new technologies that are using artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, automation, uh, I think are going to, yeah, are, are absolutely the future. Um, data is going to be critical in that. It, and it's not, it's not just technology that's, it's global technology. It's technology which will work around the world. Um, when I know one little startup near us here um, was doing just doing flying drones to map weeds, they were providing their service over in Eastern Europe. Okay, so the wow. farmer in Eastern Europe would fly the drone, send the file back. Guy in just outside of Wagga Wagga, he would do the data analysis and send a file back that he'd put in his spray rig and it would do the spot spray. So, so you end up with this. You've very much got a global um, marketplace for this technology. I remember a quote once that say, you know, if someone looked at you know, um, the future, you know, today's technology is someone 100 years ago is indistinguishable magic in, in many cases because you don't understand them. And I always think of, I remember my grandfather talking about in the 60s doing superphosphate trials on pasture and how, you know, this was just weird stuff to do like and you know you'd have three farmers turn up and most of them are telling you what a lot of rubbish it is etc and and you look where agronomy and technology's got now um and i suppose ag tech's in that space now you know we're good we're good we do we're applying this tech that to you know someone in you know 50 years time when my grandfather go oh my god i can't believe you didn't think that was a no-brainer um so yeah you know, but to us, it's bleeding edge at the moment. But to to in another fifty or even twenty years, it will seem like such old tech. Yeah, yeah, that's no doubt. Just to close, um, you've been you've you've had a um, obviously a, a very very successful career in agri business. So, and and there's a there's actually a, it's really exciting moment. There's a lot of young people who are interested in ag at the moment. I just think of ag university. So. I went to Murask and my brother went to Mark Sullivan. And I remember and at the time when we were there, so this late 80s, early 90s, you know, ag unis across Australia were chockers, all right? And then they went through this massive decline and they seemed to be pretty full again. Like I, I spoke to the third-year Murask graduates earlier on this year, you know, and the room was full. Um, so, you know, so what's your advice to... You know, do you see why people are really starting to flood into ag again? Well, it's not flooding yet, but it's a, it's a strong trickle, I'd say. Um, and advice to them thinking about a career or, the, you know, you've got a young John in Sydney who's thinking about a career in ag. So what, do you have any advice for them about for them? So a couple of things. First thing is, as a rule, our strategy in agriculture is keep the kids from the bush in the bush. Okay, and uh, and I think we're well beyond that now. I think we've got to start um, promoting agriculture as a great place for somebody from the bush or from the city to have a career in. And I think we underestimate the value. I mean, 90% of our population works in the city. They're looking for purpose. We've got purpose in spades. 
They're worried about the environment. We've got the solution to the environment. They're worried about feeding the world. We've got, you know, like it's a no-brainer if you start putting it in the terms of what they're concerned about and what they're interested in. They're interested in technology, you know. So, but but what we need to probably do is shape it up uh, in a way which is uh, that that people in the city particularly can relate to. So. If you think about it, you know, we, the perception is um, a career in agriculture is you've got to live in the bush. Well, no, you don't. You can have a career in agriculture and live in the city. Uh, perception is that um, it's romantic but narrow in terms of a career path. Like you, if you're going to do agriculture, you're going to end up being a farmer. No, you don't. You can actually have a career in agriculture and go anywhere. You can end up in Brussels or London or New York and in a career in agriculture. Um, the, so... Um, there's a, also a percep- you know, a perception that you're going to get a very narrow set of skills. Well, no, you'll end up with a set of skills after 10 years in agriculture that will hold you in good stead no matter what you do, even if you go into some other part of the economy. So I think there's a, quite a bit of work that we can do to, to reposition agriculture as an attractive place to have a career. And the thing that we've got in our favour is this, we've got purpose in spades and that's what people are looking for. Definitely, but... Even the tech thing, John, like so whenever I have new team members join us here at Agrimaster and especially from outside the ag space and we go and show them a a modern farm and they're just blown away by just, even if they're not working on farm, they're just amazed at how um, the technology in play on the average farm and both in the office and and in the shed and in the paddock and they're just blown away by it and they go, I never imagined this. Um, so even, but we don't tend to see those images of ag outside of the small circle of ag, do we? No, I, and I think that's a that's an issue, and I think that's a challenge for the agriculture industry. Um, and the other one is just our own self-image. Um, so we've, we, um, in, when we survey, we survey about twenty thousand people in the community, and ninety-eight percent of Australians believe that Australian rural industries are central to their way of life. 98% of people believe rural industries are, are central to their current way of life. Um, NFF did a survey recently of farmers. 75% of farmers believe they're undervalued by society. So, so you know, like even our own self-perception and, and realising how important people see agriculture as being to their, to their future is really, really important, I, I think. Um, so... Yeah, we've got a bit, we've got a, I think we've got a bit of work to do to, and, and really for, to, to bring the, the city country together a bit. We're, we are all the same. We're the same people, same drivers. And I think that connection's the right thing. So when I was at school, I went to boarding school and like most people went to boarding school, you know, like if you're at school, even for all the day boys at school, the, you know, everybody had a, uncle or someone they knew on a farm like even you know it's almost like there was this everyone had a first a direct connection to ag somewhere but when my boys are at school that is a, you know it's pretty rare these days so you yeah. don't really so we need to those connections we'd almost took for granted didn't we yeah we did and we need to recreate them yeah so um i had a couple of questions i think you might have already answered i always have two questions to finish Joe. the first one is what do you reckon is the most commonly held rural myth in your head or a, or a rural myth that you kind of go, I just want to tell everyone this doesn't exist or it's not true? Do you have any? I mean, I think you've just talked about these perceptions of ag, but do you have any others? 
Oh, the only other one is there's a perception. There's a perception of ag is that if you're an ag, you're a farmer, and that's just not the truth. There, farmers are incredibly important, and what happens on farm is incredibly important, but it's not the whole story. Um, so can you go to the stat right at the beginning? You talked about that stat right at the beginning. The percentage of people in ag that are on farms. I think it's somewhere around five percent. It's not much more than that. Wow. Um, and and w- when you think about it, you look around farms and. Well, West Australia is a great example. You, you don't have a lot of people on farms, but they're farming a lot of country. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and my last question, John, before we all go, is when you're not working in ag, because you've been in ag your whole career, um, what do you love doing? So what's your non-ag pastime, John? Uh, um, so this might sound crazy, but I um, my passion is classical music, and I spend a lot of time listening to a whole range of different um, classical music. I, uh, you know, didn't dark past when I was growing up. I used to play in an orchestra. Uh, the next best for me is actually listening to really well recorded music. But are you a, are you a still player? No, I'm not anymore. I I played uh, violin for many many years. Yeah, so you're one of those amazing people who can hear notes and go, okay, that person missed that note on that uh, on that. Um, I see. I don't even know what a section of music is called, but they can you hear those notes? I can hear it. Yes. <laughs> I, I was listening to a, a guy the other day who's a music producer, and he was talking about he was listening to the latest Adele song, and he goes, "What I love about Adele is when she, you know, when she misses notes." And I just all I heard was beautiful singing, and he goes, "Oh no, she missed a note there." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want that to distract from the pleasure. That's all. No, it's not. Anyway, John, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciated that. And I, and I think everyone listening um, to this would have uh, learned a lot today. Um, and all the best with um, really everything, you know, the luck with getting the, putting the, uh, I love that, that acu, acupuncture or agri futures. Oh, what did you call it? What's the word? Uh, we, we colloquially call it the agri futures acupuncture point. I love that. So that acupuncture point on. Um, Agri Futures actually punch a point on carbon. I think that's well and truly overdue, and I think um, everyone really appreciate that. And um, we'll see you um, at Evoke in February. Sounds great. Thanks, David. Good on you. Thanks, John. Bye for now. Thanks again for listening to Boots Off Log On. Our aim with this podcast is to give you access to the best minds in agricultural business and to help your farm business thrive. So if you have any feedback, or suggestions for the podcast, including people you believe I should interview, please email bootsofflogon at agrimaster.com.au. If you like this episode, please take time to share it on social media, or even better, directly with at least one friend a day. And take the time to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, as it really helps us reach more farm businesses like you. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster farm business management software and services, you can find us at agrimaster.com.au. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.